So we miss you, Shell. I hope you are getting high and happy today. Can I help the people who are missing Shell? I just want to do one thing. <laughs> it's witchcraft. <laughs> you did a great job. Did her proud. <laughs> it's witchcraft. <laughs> Hey, it's 4.20 a.m. Grab a seat, pack a bowl, and make sure your nightlight is on. Listen in as two West Coast sort of witches smoke more than a little bit of cannabis and tell truish tales of paranormal events, ghoulish crimes, and things that go bump in the night. Hi, I'm Layla, and welcome to a special Stoned Witches Hour. Today, we have a guest host, and I'd like to introduce you all to a past guest that we've had, one of our most popular guests and episodes of all time, Lisa Ann from the YouTube channel Empower with Flower. Hi, Lisa Ann. Hi, everybody. So today we're going to have Lisa Ann talk with us about what she's smoking and some of the spooky things that happen in Northern California. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and what we can find on it? I would love to. First, I'd kind of like to tell you what I'm going to smoke right now. I have a nice bong full of wedding tree. Have, have you had wedding tree before? I've had wedding cake. I've had blue wedding. I've had a couple different weddings. I've never had wedding tree. I'm intrigued. So this is wedding tree. It's a mid-level, you know how I do ass mid-high. It's a mid-level sativa. Uh, it's kind of low for shell, but good for you and me. It's about 26%. Oh, very nice. That's a good daytime smoke. Yeah, it's it's good. It gets me energized and creative. And also it's it's nice and relaxing in the body. We do like that. You and I both like that kind of daytime creative and yet also relaxing kind of focus smoke. That's it. Whereas Shell likes the couch lock. I'm out for the day, done with everything. (laughs) She wants to be completely medicated. And and so that's not always what you want every single day. Um, But that sounds delicious. How does it taste? It is. It's I'm kind of on the shell side of that. Like, like I'm not, I'm into terpenes and I I've learned about it and I've trained myself and the entourage effect, but man, my, you know, my hun will tell you all about the taste, but I'm just like, give me the effects. And that kind of leads to my, my YouTube channel empower with flower. You know, I started it because I was having so many great benefits and effects from smoking cannabis, which I had always thought was bad. And I was real wary about it. And once I got the real information and informed myself, I was having so many benefits. I just felt really called with kind of empathetic calling to, hey, tell us, tell, put this out there. And as many people that see it, maybe they can find it too. And that's what, that's my whole thing behind Empower with Flowers. Just come on guys, come get these amazing benefits mentally and physically. That's actually what I love about your channel. And one of the things that drew me to you when I I found you through a Reddit post and went to your channel and absolutely fell in love with you. It just you're so happy about it. You're you're excited to share cannabis with people like me. You like to get into some of the science behind it. And and you really present that to people in a way that's understandable and fun and interesting. And and I just love your channel for that. It's visually beautiful and you just always give great information. So definitely check out Empower with Flower on YouTube. Check it out. 
Yeah, I enjoy making them like I, you know, I kind of do two things. I do how to's. So just like you, I, you know, on your scary stories, I do some research and I find what's poignant to me. And, and I like those how to's because they were things that I, I couldn't find when I was trying to learn, or I couldn't find one that I related to, or I couldn't find one that wasn't so overspoken with the personality or the promos or the things that you, that, you know, and the media information was way in there. Right. So I try to just jump right in and give the media information, but I, I do really love Layla waking up in the morning and having that creative feeling and hitting a bowl and then just talking about something in the high sessions, you know, and it's, and it's usually something I'm struggling with. So I just made one on like, um, you know, managing overwhelm. I have one in the can that's about human unity through cannabis. Oh, I'm interested in that. It's in the can. I just, I just really believe that cannabis is one of the keys to being authentic, your authentic self. It has been for me and I'm a human and I don't see other people doing it. And so except people that are stoners or counterculture, you know, or, or you even professionals that use cannabis, you know, they just seem more authentic and kind of happy. And that's what it's done for me, plus a million other things. So I love the how to's of cannabis and the research, but I also love just sharing the mind that it's given me and the thoughts that it's opened up to me. It's such a balance with those things. And I think I kind of have found that with cannabis. I can I can be the earth mother goddess, put my hands in the dirt, grow this beautiful plant and, and smoke it and have all these existential high thoughts. But I can also smoke this plant and be realistic and down to earth and study the science and get my work done and do my research and do the things that I need to do. And one of the things I love about it is that balance is you can you can find so many things within yourself that this plant can bring out of you and, and it can help you find peace within yourself for all those different parts, kind of help you feel more settled within yourself. And maybe that's why we can connect better with other people because I think once we're more comfortable in our own skin and more comfortable in our own head and our own space, then we're we're more able to accept other people into that space and to kind of bring that togetherness back around, you know? And and I think cannabis can really help us do that. Yeah, I think it would bring empathy. You know, one of the things that I didn't have, and you know, people would point this out to me before, you know, in my life, um, you know, and and uh, that I just was kind of not empathetic and and couldn't really put myself in other people's shoes because my mind was all cut up, you know, about me, me, me. And I, man, I've never felt so much empathy for everyone um, since I just started really exploring that more elevated mind space. Because when you're high, you, you don't think about the silly stuff that we waste our time it's thinking so about. so true. You know, if you steer it the right way and you have the right intention, you know, you can really, you know, turn it psychedelic and really get rid of a lot of bad. I've gotten rid of so much baggage and everything. So I just want to share, share, share. It's an organic thing. I get up in the morning and I go, I feel like I want to share and I hit a bowl and just talk. And I have gotten just one or two people already that have personally contacted me and said, this really helped me make a decision or this is exactly what I needed to hear. So I'm happy with those two people. I'm good. I'm going to keep it. But, <laughs> right? you know, just, just to know that I helped a stranger, you know, it's just, it's just great. So it's very fulfilling. I've, 
you know, Shell and I have had a lot of fun with this for the, a lot of the same reasons, just the different people that we have reached and have reached out to us for all sorts of different reasons. That's really nice. And, and, you know, it's really like, you know, I would want everyone to make these kind of videos because I'm just expressing myself. And in a way it's therapy for me, I've done a lot of progress in my thoughts as I'm making the videos, as I'm doing the high sessions. So it's therapy for me. And I think a lot of people, yeah, I would love it if a lot of people would feel more free to just go, Hey, I'm Joe. And here's all the things that are crowding my mind today. I'm just putting it out there in case somebody, you know, and here's what I figured out. Cause it's kind of like, just, uh, you know, we're helping each other, but I really think cannabis has to be integrated into the future of health and, mental wellness. And of course, you know, the other thing I want to do is dispel myths, you know, the myths, I, I see the myths Layla all the time. And I'm sure you and Shell just get, you know, it's a whole podcast, like you say, but you know, you, even now intelligent people are saying these things that you just shouldn't be saying anymore. Just like we call people the correct pronouns and we're, you know, every, the whole world's getting on track with being more kind and more inclusive. Right. And then you hear somebody say these myths about cannabis and it, it can really get me angry. So I have a list of, of a video about those two, because we just have to stop perpetuating it. That is so true. Uh, myths around cannabis for some reason seem to hang around. Do you have a top pet peeve myth? You know, what's your top myth that you really hate to hear? The, the, you know, I probably my, my biggest pet peeve is the addiction myth, because um, we do it every day, like, you know, two bong minimum. And then when we go on a trip, and, and we go somewhere where we can't take it, we can be gone for a week. And we don't think about it. But on the plane home, I'll go, oh, tonight we get to hit a bong. Well, yeah. But, but there's no physical difference. There's no mental difference. Maybe we're a little less groovy, you know, but but we don't think about it when we're away from it. That is not addiction. That is so, so true. I smoke quite a bit more than that. I've smoked for a very long time <laughs> since my since my late teens. And, <laughs> and I am very much a heavy daily smoker. We also travel quite a bit. And there are different places that you go to where you cannot bring anything with you, not a vape, not an edible. You really just shouldn't bring anything. It's just safer that way. And right. or for work, you know, there's times when we go to work conventions where it's just dumb. I don't, you know, we're staying at a, a hotel paid for by work you, and, and that right. type of thing. You know, you just don't want to take the risk of going to a state where conventions being held, where it's not legal. It, it's yeah. just, you just don't. I mean, two bongs for us is before breakfast. Okay. So. <laughs> but you're also using it for analgesic. You're using Correct. it for pain relief. You're using it for, for um, like I am too, for, for things I used to take medication for. Correct. I, <laughs> you know? Right. I used to take ADHD medication. I used to take pain medication and I'd very much use it for that. That's correct. But we can be gone a week or more. And the same thing, the, uh, the only side effect I possibly would notice is we do tend to spend more time unwinding in different ways. We'll do yoga, we'll meditate, we'll go for hikes a little bit more than we would otherwise because yes. smoking to close to that. Yeah. Exactly. Because smoking is one of our ways of relaxing and coming down. And so if you take that away, you have to replace it with something else. And so for us, again, if if we start to get a little cranky, we're like, oh well I need a bath or I need to go for a little <laughs> walk or I need to, you know, we yeah. need to go play a video game or something. We'll do something else that's healthy to take the place of that. But for the most part, we don't notice it. 
And and again, like you guys, when we get home, we're like, yeah, we get to hit a bong when we get home. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I have been known, and I'm not going to say what airport, but there have been more than one occasion <laughs> where I have left a joint in the glove box of my car in the long-term parking, <laughs> just so that we'll have something for the ride home. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. So it's not addictive. And, and you and I are just two people and, and we're just honest, nice people, right? And we're just saying like, if if tomorrow we couldn't do it, we would be sad, um, but we wouldn't have withdrawal symptoms. We would go on with our lives and we'd be fine. Yep. Yeah. You know, the worst person I ever saw have what you might call even close to a withdrawal symptom is um, my husband's father who he had MS and one of his doctors told him under the table back in the day, I really think you should try marijuana. (laughs) And, and he didn't for a while. And the MS progressed to the point where he was in a wheelchair. He could barely walk. He couldn't feed himself. He needed help going to the bathroom and he started taking cannabis and he started smoking regularly. And when I met him, that man was one of the strongest men I knew. Zero problems. We started growing together and those were some of the best memories I have is working on our, at the time, illegal garden together to make sure he could have his medication. Because when he didn't, when he wasn't able to get cannabis, he would start to shake and he wouldn't be able to hold things and he would have trouble with words. And this titan of a man, this strong, gigantic, pick up my kids on his shoulder, run around the yard man would be reduced to someone trembling on a couch. And it was cannabis that kept him from that. And and it just, it blew my mind. And so he would have not i guess it i guess it wasn't withdrawal symptoms but i guess it was more the ms coming out you know and and he would get cranky <laughs> he would be of a little course. bit cranky and more than likely because his symptoms were getting bad and that would make anybody upset so i guess that not even that is withdrawal symptoms but if anyone could be of said to have had them i i suppose maybe he could but yeah not addictive no withdrawal symptoms well, and, and you know that really gets my like my heart rate is is going up and i can feel my heart beating because you know and we talked we were talking about pet peeves and myths and things you know <laughs> In what fucking universe do we have this plant that's been around for millions of years that is that can alleviate so much suffering and change people's chemistries to get rid of all that that greed and that and 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 it's it's not just growing everywhere like it makes me so angry, Layla, because he suffered more. And now needlessly. yeah, and now you watch. People are going to start because the because the research and develop because the stuff's happening. People are going to start faking, making fucking money off of profiting, and 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 the same people who wouldn't let him have it are going to be making. You know, anyway, that you know, and that's not even the the medical injustice of it doesn't even begin to touch the social injustice of it. The people making money off of it now, while other black and brown people are in jail over the exact same thing, oh. and it's completely ridiculous the the way that it has been structured and the the social injustice and the the racism the the money grubbing the medical fraud all of it is just it's historically very sad different podcasts it is but if all if all the if everyone had been smoking cannabis from the beginning all that would not even be happening 
And I think that's a big part of why they didn't want anyone to smoke. It was because people did feel that sense of connection and collective. Sure. Yeah. How farther off the grid, you know, we've always been kind of counter to culture, but how, how much farther, hugely farther are we now from, um, you know, capitalism or the norm since cannabis? Well, hugely, right? We're we're weirdo freak people that live weirdly. And it's like, they don't want everyone doing that, right? Because we, we can live on very little. We're, we're, you know, very minimal and, and, you know, zero waste and all that. They don't want that. No, there's the tiny house movement, the van life movement, the cannabis movement. I want to leave this part of this on a home, uh, on a positive note. I feel it out there changing. I, I feel it with the legalization, but also with just the fact that I can wear a weed um, t-shirt or hat or whatever. And, you know, everyone's smiling and kind of nodding at me, you know, right, right. Before. So, you know, yeah, I do feel it. I do feel just it. the fact that we are two women here, middle-aged women. We are not kids. We are not teenagers. We are not 20 somethings. We are women who have had careers. We have done all, we've had children. We've done all these things. Yeah. And now we are having a podcast. And now granted yours is, I feel more informative. I love that about your site. You give a lot of information in a very personal way. But we need your entertainment. We need (laughs) Right. And I think that. Exactly. And so I we try to come at it from an accessible, funny, interesting way to show people that there are lots of different ways to look at cannabis. And it doesn't have to be from that stoner dude. It's all types. It's people from all different walks of life. It it might even be the lady next door that looks like she bakes great cookies and grows roses in her backyard. That's me, by the way. It's the perfect time. I, my retirement happened right, you know, soon after finding cannabis, about a year and a half after that. And then I could smoke every day. I mean, it's perfect, you know, and I kind of get mad that I wasn't allowed or didn't ever before this. Okay. I didn't find cannabis till, till my mid fifties, but, uh, you know, the ladies, if you're sitting at home retired and what, like I'm telling you, change your life, just transform it all into bliss and contentment with cannabis. You just, you know, the Reddit board that you showed me, the Ent Wives board that yes, we're both yeah. part of. I adore Ent- those women. Shout out to Ent Wives everywhere. I love that board. I love seeing women show their true selves, their colorful selves, their happy, joyous, sad, going through itself, every part of being a human on this planet and they're putting it out there alongside their cannabis and it's helping them to connect with that and just the beauty and the joy and the sisterhood i love that it was was the you know when i went there i couldn't believe what i was looking at i go is this really a, a reddit subreddit of women smoking pot gloriously joyously and openly and, and I just, if I ever, you know, I have down days, of course, too, we all do. And, and that is one place I will go is witches versus patriarchy and it wives on Reddit. It just really lifts my spirit and says, hang in there, girl. You Cause know. you know, there's others out there like you fighting the good fight. You know, we are worshiping the same weed. <laughs> We're looking for the same justice. And I notice on there that I have it easy because a lot of people have obstacles in the way of getting their cannabis or using their cannabis or people who aren't accepting of their use, um, you know, or people who can't get it at all. Um, 
you know, so when I go on there, I, I find my tribe and then I feel really grateful to be a privileged member of the tribe because, you know, a lot of people have obstacles, um, you know, that I don't have and that you and you and that you and I both don't have. So I'm That's great. Right. right. With the way the world is right now. Some days we need that sisterhood. That's the only thing that can just keep you going sometimes. Right. Now, speaking of sisterhood, my stories today involve women of the night. And Ooh. now my personal feelings on strippers and prostitution, I'm for it. I think women should do whatever, as long as it's of your own volition and that's what you want to do, go for it. Why I'm not? With you. Yes. Yeah, I have zero problems with that. So I'm going to put that out as a disclaimer right now. <laughs> and <laughs> I have been to strip clubs and we have children who tell us about their experience at strip clubs. So we're very open in our family. Quite a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, we were down in New Orleans for some big IT conference. It was November, so it was cooler, and it was just beautiful weather down there, and it's just a gorgeous old city. Walking along Bourbon Street, and it's again November, so not a lot going on. It was relatively quiet, but there was everything was still open, the bars, the strip clubs, and quite often there'd be people in the middle of the street, kind of barkers, I guess you might call them, asking you to come into the different establishments. And one gentleman in particular kind of dressed up like a, what you might consider like a voodoo zombie almost. Really interesting character, really fun guy, convinced us to go to a strip club that he was advertising. <laughs> and Had you been imbibing or anything before this invitation? <laughs> we were smoking quite a bit. I mean, there are people smoking cigars down the street, so our pot smoke didn't really, oh, yeah. nobody really <laughs> noticed. And, uh, but we thought, okay, let's go see a strip show. It was only, it was early. It was like nine or 10 o'clock at night. We go into this dimly lit bar. It was just a door. I wouldn't even have known it was a a club of any kind. It was just a black door and a black wall. And we go in through this little hallway and we come out into a bigger room and there's a bar in one corner, just a small bar with a lady behind it and one guy sitting at, at the bar. And the rest of the room was empty. It was a <laughs> runway with like a round stage and then a bunch of chairs all around it. It was completely empty. Just us, the bartender. Wait, like, am I supposed to strip? <laughs> right? I'm like, what's going on here? And there. <laughs> yeah, there's a stage. This is kind of interesting. <laughs> like, so we got a drink. You know, we got a little pitcher of drinks. We go sit right up by the stage. And we had been told that this was kind of more of a burlesque show rather than so much of a strip, just straight stripping. And it was absolutely phenomenal. There were three different acts. The first girl came out and I don't remember what she was dressed as, but they all had gorgeous costumes. One of them was a witch. That's all I remember. But they all had these beautiful, elaborate costumes and they danced again, more burlesque show than strip club. And it was just us sitting at the stage. And so, you know, we threw our dollars and, you know, gave them compliments. We had so much fun and the women were a lot of fun and um, it, it was just a beautiful show. And after the second act, you know, there was a little bit of time between each one and I had to pee. I'd been drinking mojitos and I had to get up and go to the bathroom. So I get up and I go to the bathroom. And as I come back, I see a woman going into, they had like a curtained off area in the back. There's like a hallway with the bathrooms and like a curtained off thing that I assumed where the dancers went. Like a dressing room or, or something like that. But I saw a woman come from the hallway and basically all I saw of her was pink feathered headdress and like a pink boa. I remember seeing feathers and sequins as she walked in through the curtains as I was walking out. And uh, one of the previous 
performers came over and was talking to us a little bit. And I said, oh, I know the third girl coming out is going to be, what is she, a flamingo? Because she had all pink feathers. And she looked at me all confused. And she she's like, no, no one's in pink. And I said, yeah, I saw her go into the dressing room. She was wearing a pink boa and had like a, a tall pink feathered hat. And she just kind of stared at me. And she said, no. And then the music started and the witch girl came out and did her act. And I was very, very confused. And the previous performer went over and was talking to the bartender. And after the witch burlesque show, which was, again, a lot of fun, all of them, the bartender and the three girls, descend on us after the witch had picked up all the money that we had thrown for her. They go off and talk and come back and they say, tell me again what you saw. It and sounds I heard, familiar to them, maybe. <laughs> and I'm like this, I'm a little freaked out because I don't like being a center of attention. And it, it was weird enough being the only patrons watching, you know, these striptease acts because I felt like a lot of attention was on us rather than on the performers. It was still fun, but as an introvert, it was a little much for me. And so these women, beautiful women descending on me and asking me, and I was very confused. And I said, I came out of the bathroom and I saw a woman as she was going into the curtains and she had a, a pink boa and like a pink tall headdress. That's all I saw. And I thought she was the next performer. And they said, no, you saw the ghost. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and supposedly several patrons and a few of the people ha that have worked there have seen this woman, usually in something pink and feathery. And she's seen often going into the dressing rooms. And apparently I saw this ghost. Have no idea what the bar was named. I don't remember. I could probably point it out if we went on Bourbon Street again. <laughs> again, black door and a black wall. You should have to look for it. It was a lot of fun and I, the dances were so much fun. We had such a good time and everyone was so nice. And the burlesque shows were very sexy, very beautiful, very sultry and entertaining. And I saw a ghost in a pink boa. Wow. So I have two questions. I'm curious sure. about things. My, my first question is, is there a, you know, is there more of a, a history of her? Like, you know how sometimes I, I've learned this just from your podcast, that they can be someone who had an untimely death or was wronged there. And my second question is, are you more, do you, are you someone who's more, who, who's going to see these things more because of something about you? Actually, excellent questions. The first one I wish I knew. The only thing that they told me was that this is something that other people had seen going back quite a few years and that none of them had seen her, but they had talked to a patron before me that had and had heard of other girls who had seen her before, but no one knew her history. She was an urban myth in that building. That's correct. In that building, she had been seen enough times that people knew of her, but no one knew why she was there or if anyone had died. And they at the time didn't have any speculation. And I wasn't doing, you know, research or looking up stories at the time. So I didn't know. Recently, because I knew I was going to be talking about it, I tried to find the bar or the place and, and I uh, couldn't find any mention of it online. So I'd probably have to go back and see if I could find the patrons there and talk to them again and see wow. if we could figure out what happened. When you saw her, what did it feel like? And and again, you know, my same thing of do you have something about you that that the ghosts that that you're going to have that experience more so than someone else? 
at the time, it didn't feel like anything at all. I, I legitimately thought she was the next performer. She was dressed elaborately enough. I just thought I had caught a glimpse of the third of the third woman who was going to come out and perform. You know, there was no cold spots, no electricity or tingling. And as far as ghosts go, I have had a lot of experiences. I did grow up in a haunted house. But I wouldn't say that I'm particularly sensitive to ghosts. I've read tarot cards since I was very young. My grandmother taught me, uh, my grandmother who lived, originally lived in that haunted house, was very much into the paranormal. And she gave me my first deck of tarot cards when I was quite young and taught me how to read them. So you've learned to be sensitive to it and to be open to it. My personal opinion is that everyone is sensitive and open to it, depending on how much you allow yourself. As children, Children see ghosts much more often than adults do because they haven't been taught yet that those things, those supernatural things or those glimpses of the future that they see, they haven't been taught that that's wrong or or fake. And so they're much more open to the idea until someone repeatedly tells them, no, you can't know that your aunt is coming over to visit. You know, that's not possible. Them or shame them. Right. In front of other people, laugh at them. Yeah. But we all are. Everyone has that ability. And when I do tarot parties, one of the things I, I like to uh, mention to people is, is that, have you ever felt someone stare at you or have you ever stared at someone to get them to turn around? <laughs> of course, I've done both those things. How does yeah. that work? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's our psychic ability. That's everyone has that. Everyone has, a, has had the experience of feeling someone stare at them or staring at someone to get them to look at you. We accept that as just a thing that we do. Yes. How? You know, that's, right. <laughs> that's, so that's, we all have psychic ability. We all have the ability to see and to feel these things. It's just a lot of times we're taught or shamed to kind of hide that. And cannabis is another thing that can kind of come into play when people's inhibitions are down or they're more relaxed. You know, having a little bit of cannabis can help you be a little more open to that. Maybe allow those perceptions, you know, the doors of perception to kind of be open a little bit wider. Exactly. And, and it's not really about, you know, what's scientifically a fact. It's about be whimsical and play in your mind like you did when you were a kid. Let yourself have that because that'll transfer over into to your relationships and, and your decisions and everything. So don't be so, you know, black and white about it. Have fun with it and play around. You'll really discover a lot about yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think that's one of the things that is so freeing about smoking cannabis is it does allow you to kind of let go of those barriers and be a little more childlike, I guess, a little more open to things than you would otherwise be. And, you know, as someone else who tends to, I get uptight, I, I have my lists, I kind of get crazy about things and get running around and doing too much stuff and too much in my head. It's, it's nice to be able to sit down with a bowl and just kind of put all those things in their place, refocused and, and get right back into what I need to get done for the day. Oh, and so. that's the, that's the key to my whole philosophy. Just the uh, very briefly, you, when you're a kid, everybody dictates your time and your thoughts and everything. Right. But when you get older, you have to re be responsible for yourself. Everybody knows that our childhoods screw us up. Everyone knows that it, no one, no one, no one's immune. No one gets out alive. 
No one gets out alive. So when you're a little older and you, and you know that it's everywhere, um, you see it in every everything, you have to take the responsibility for yourself and say, I'm going to carve out some downtime for myself. And during that downtime, I'm going to think for myself and talk to myself and journal and, and what do I truly feel about these issues that everybody's talking about and why. And if you add cannabis to that downtime, you'll actually start cracking away this programmed mind and you won't be up in your head all the time. You'll start looking at issues and people and things more from a a heart mind kind of a thing. And that's when, you know, cannabis does this. It lets you be more minimalist and relax and not be so caught up and, you know, slow down and really enjoy every day. This is why I adore you, Lisa Ann. You heart mind, self-care, all of that. Yes, 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 yes. We nurturers, those of the feminine persuasion, we don't do self-care very often. We're not good at it. We we take care of other people. We take care of everyone else. And and for right. some of us, nurturing ourselves takes practice and it takes intent. And so being able to to smoke cannabis, I I can't tell you how much I love to go in my garden with a joint and just listen to some great music, smoke my pot and not have to worry about the dishes or the errands or my project deadline or any of that and just take some time for me and do the things that I love. And it doesn't have to be gardening and a joint. It could be it could be going for a walk. It could be watching your favorite show. It could be reading a book. Right. Playing video games. Playing video video games. To relax, you know. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> How much better would that be on cannabis playing some kind of a groovy video game? Come on, be great. Like, oh, it is. I, I do it on the regular. <laughs> and <laughs> giving yourself permission to take that downtime for yourself. You know, have a bath with a joint. I, it will change your life, I guarantee. <laughs> Women don't have time for self-care because we are judged on the fringe of the bell curve for women where men are judged on the fat part of the bell curve. So they don't have to try very hard. Right. But the things we're told to achieve are things that we can't achieve. And that's what we spend all our time and money on. But when you start, you know, when you, when you get out of that with cannabis, then now you have time for downtime because I'm not, you know, my routine, I have nothing on my schedule. I don't do appointments. And I used to do all that fancy lady stuff. So it's, it's a personal responsibility to make downtime for yourself. I love that. I'm over here nodding my head. I'm just sitting here nodding my head the whole time you're talking. I'm like, yes, Lisa Ann, preach it. <laughs> wedding tree talking. It's not me. I think I just channeled. Wedding something. tree. Do you know what the, do you know now, obviously wedding cake is one of the parents because that that's usually how it goes. Where does the tree come in? Do you know what the other part of that uh, heritage I, I is? I want to say lemon tree off the top of my head, but I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look it up. Oh, so, so like a nice sativa dominant. Yeah. And it's hitting right here. Like, you know how you can feel it. Um, uh, it's just really, uh, really groovy, you know, and, and uh, it totally opens up my mind to 
all kinds of things when I'm on cannabis to ideas and I say words I didn't know I knew. And it's just really mind expanding. It's def it definitely doesn't kill your brain cells and make you stupid. No, <laughs> no, it does not. The opposite of that. <laughs> now I know so many people that's again, you know, we were talking about myths a little bit earlier and that's one of those pervasive myths is that it, it kills brain cells, which is really weird to me because alcohol is the one that kills brain cells. Yeah, let's not go off on that. But but cannabis, cannabis actually gives you neurogenesis. You're making new neural connections that you've never made before. Right, new pathways. You're making new pathways. But, you know, don't get me started. It's in my videos. This is one thing I want to do. I want somebody to start a website and say, hey, or a Reddit and say, hey, list here something bad that happens because of cannabis. You know, and, and if I put alcohol in there, oh my gosh, that you'd have uh, everyone in the world has a bad negative alcohol story. Everyone in the world has a bad negative, you know, uh, cocaine story or, or whatever. Right. Right? right. But where is the bad, the harm done to others or self from cannabis? You're exactly and, right. And why the F is it on schedule one, you know, you get really angry about it. Right. But we, again, that this is how I calm myself down. I go, I'm doing the good thing of personal responsibility of thinking with my own mind through cannabis mm -hmm. and living my truth. And, and then of course you feel empathetic and you feel called to share it. But even every one person that decides to do that makes a big difference. I agree. I absolutely agree. And the more we can get the word out, the, the, the more people will be able to fight these stereotypes. Because if you see so many of us, so many of us have hidden it for so long because, because of work, because of relationships, family, whatever. Now we're coming out of the shadows and they're able to see more than just that stoner stereotype. And I, I think the more of us that have YouTube channels or have podcasts or, or, or just, you know, when you go to your doctor, say, yes, I smoke cannabis and be, be safe to do so. I think, I think that's going to really help people a lot because it, it is such a great plant for people and so many benefits, so many benefits of it. You know, it's not just MS, fibromyalgia, uh, any arthritis. Come on. Well, like you said, the neurogenesis, being able to forge those new pathways, especially as someone gets older is invaluable and being able to find these things and study it scientifically. I'm over the moon. The better, the more it gets, the better. We could go on forever. <laughs> right? We could just keep talking, especially because I am also smoking a um, sativa dominant today. I'm smoking some of my more of my homegrown uh, Blue Dream. We're going to talk <laughs> and talk and talk. I love Blue Dream. Oh, so good. So tasty. It makes the body feel so good. It does. It does. Oh, it keeps really? my body happy, keeps my brain energized and happy, and it tastes delicious. I, I do like it. I'm... I like a good flavor. It's in the sweets and dreams category of the Emerald Cup cannabis classifications. Thank you. And thank you. I'm going to shout out that episode. <laughs> Find your perfect strain. I love that episode. I popped that in. Girl, I did not expect you to whip out this Stoned Witches Hour episode. <laughs> that was so much fun. I loved seeing that. You did oh, such a good job. It. 
Yeah, you said it. I wrote it down and I had to go, oh, this this is going to help my mind figure out which strain to use for which thing. And I was all over it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's so good. And the Sweets and Dreams is one of my favorites. I do love the sweet flavors. I like that kind of effect. Uh, I would say, I don't know what the THC on this is. I believe it's typically a lower middle range. And I would say for the effects, this is definitely a lower middle range. This is something I can puff on all day and, and just kind of be... And not really, no one would know you're high. <laughs> Just kind of be middle of the road, happy, okay. pleasant. Dream would be great if you were going to work. Yes. Um, being a mom with toddlers and they're, yes. they take a nap, you do some blue dream, they wake up, you're the best mom in the world. You right. Know? I have a Shell strain recommendation. A shout out to Shell on the East Coast, um, new grandma, is I we tried garlic cookies. Oh, I love those. Six point two, three or something. We got it just an eighth. It was a, you know, expensive eighth for us. But I, if, if you want to have a, a, a up in the cosmos, intimate puff and fuck date night with your honey and just really feel everything and go to the moon, just garlic cookies, I'm telling you. And the brand was talking trees and it was just top shelf shell high percentage <laughs> well if we're going high percentage my favorite evening smokes or relax you know when i am ready for my brain to shut down my body to shut down to be very relaxed and just you know super blissful lately my favorite strain is that bacchio gelato oh I my goodness about that Ooh, boy I have a high tolerance, so it takes quite a bit for something to hit me fast and hard and right. And this stuff really straight between the eyes, my eyelids start getting heavy, uh, my face starts feeling it. Now I'm the same way, believe it or not. And I, I don't know if it, this is how it is in your, your, um, with your sweetie, but my honey's, you know, a lot taller than me, probably, you know, twice the weight, you know, he's same. a big guy. Yep. I can tolerate so much more cannabis than him. And it's been like this since the beginning. So if we do the same thing, he'll start telling me how he's feeling. I'm like, shut up, hold on, I'm catching up, right? And and sometimes I'll even do an extra bong, you know? And so I have a, a that tolerance and and if, and I'm always, so it takes a lot for, for me to get hit too. And if I take a, a, if I have a light day, I can go back to getting hit, but I'm the same way being a small person but really having a high tolerance for cannabis. You know, Lisa Ann, you bring up a very good point there in the fact that everyone is different. Just yes. because this this Bacchio gelato hits me super hard and hits me in the face and right up in my head, it'll right. hit someone else differently. You know, it might give them a different experience or a different effect. For the most part, the terpenes are gonna determine the tastes and the, and the effects, but every person is still different. Your, it's, it's your mindset. That's true too. Very much it's so. Your intention too. If if you're down in the dumps and and you're just hating yourself and you go hit you know a heavy indica, you know you, you're not going to have good thoughts. You know, so you know you have to learn to kind of steer it too. But mindset is really if you're ready to get blissed out and you're just going, please female plant terpenes, you know, bliss me out entourage effect. Then that's going to happen. And you play the right kind of music that's that's upbeat and groovy, and you're going to have a great time. Yes, exactly. And, and so if you have a bad time on something one time, and you want to try again, change the setting, change your mood a little bit, wait till you're in a better mood, light some candles, you know, sit in your favorite room, like you put on your favorite music, change things a little bit and see if that changes the effect for you, because it really can make a big difference. All right, so let's see if we can get into a little bit of stories. 
Now, I told you one of my personal ghost stories. You said you had a personal story as well, something that happened, uh, something super spooky that happened to you. Yes, it's it's not a very long story, but let me tell you, Layla, and this is the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. And even through all these years, it, it still really scares me. So here's what happened. <laughs> I'm a, a at home by myself. I'm an adult. I think I'm in my 30s. And I had been having, and and by the way, shout out to anybody who's a a psychologist or you're studying psychology or psychiatry. I want somebody to write to me and say, this is why this happened to you. This is what was going on in your mind, right? Or whatever their opinion is, because I would really like- If someone can listen and afterwards have an explanation. Please. I think it would help a lot of people because we have memories that scare us for so long, right? So I'm at home, I'm by myself, I'm in my apartment, and I had been working on helping a child kind of find their place in the world, okay? And so I was doing some reading, and then this is an exceptional um, child, very, you know, different, not the norm, exceptional, amazing, and I, I wasn't equipped to help this amazing child, but I wanted to try to be, and so I went to the library and I was reading books to help. And one of the books I happened to get, and my child is not a genius or a savant, but I got a book about ancient savant children. So think about like the 1600s, 1700s, there's this child who comes out of the mother's womb and he's speaking German, those kind of stories. And those are good, creepy stories on their own. Just what these children would come out and speaking great truths, right? When they were, when they were infants or one years old, it's creepy, but there's this, all this documentation for it. So I was reading about these savant children and I was uh, had this book in my lap and I had a movie on Layla <laughs> called Phenomenon with John Travolta, Robert Duvall, Kira Sedgwick, Forrest Whitaker, other people are in it. Can't remember everybody. I've seen that movie. In that movie, right? And it's just a, you know, a B movie. I watched it because John Travolta was in it and he's from, you know, he's one of the idols from my era. And in the movie, he gets, you know, knocked over by something. And when he wakes up, he's a genius and he knows everything and he can play chess and he can make his plants grow and he can give everybody suggestions on what they should do to get the most out of their crops because he's in this like farmer town and he can, he knows math and and calculus. and, and, And part of the movie is him helping a boy because he learns Portuguese on the way to where the boy is hurt. So he can communicate with him. You know, they get him a Portuguese book and he learns it, you know? So my scary story revolves around this. So picture this, you're at home, you're reading a book, there's a movie on the television. It's playing as I'm reading the book, sitting on the couch. Because when I'm home alone, I want more sound. So I'm in the book and I'm reading and I start to read a sentence. And as I'm reading the sentence, Robert Duvall on the screen has a book in his hand. And he reads the exact same sentence out loud that <gasps> I'm reading in my head on the page. No shit. I threw that book so hard across the room. Like I'm getting creeped out right now. <gasps> I'm creeped out. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm, I'm creeped out. I'm home alone. My heart rate's going like it is now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really creeped out. And I just kind of sit there. <laughs> and then I don't know how long I sat there, but a child came home through the door and I, 
didn't reiterate it to the child because I was really freaked out and I'm the mom and I'm not, you're not supposed to freak out your children. Right. And I just felt altered for days for, for, I'm not going to lie here. When I think about it, I, I feel altered now. So this is almost 30 years ago. It's like a glitch in the matrix type event. I told so many people, you know, after a glass of wine, I go, Hey, do you guys want to hear this story? And I would tell it and, and I would have this reaction and the react and the reaction that, that you're having. So here's what I want to talk to the psychologists and psychiatrists and, and home uh, psychologists that have no training. Cause some of you are probably smarter than the ones with training, but just last month, I reiterated this story to my hun and he goes, let's, let's watch a movie. So we put this phenomenon movie in. I, I told him the story and he goes, well, let's watch the movie again. He'd never seen the movie. It's a nineties movie. Mm-hmm. So Layla, I watched the movie from beginning to end waiting for the thing. And he only reads out loud once in the movie. And it's not anything to do with, child savant or what I was reading. What? And there's absolutely no way that <gasps> the experience was real because in them, unless they clipped this out, you know, but it, it never happens. So, what? For, so for over 25 years, I've reiterated this story with full truth. It, it still affects me now. <gasps> it happened. That is so, I believe you. I believe it happened. What in the world? And what I'm saying is now I know I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a science person. Um, I, so now I understand that it did not happen. I can accept that. And I know, and I've, I, I actually have studied and taken classes on sociology. And I, I remember hearing about a little girl who suffered her whole life because she saw her mother drowned. And then one day she's an older adult and the aunt goes, you weren't even there. You didn't see it. And so it goes along with that kind of phenomenon, but it's, it's so real that it happened. And it's the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. It also sounds a little to me like the Mandela effect and quantum reality. The Mandela effect is, is when a group of people remember something that never happened. And one of the most common things that people talk about is the Berenstein versus the Berenstain bears. Um, how the that name is spelled. I am one of the people, there's a whole group of us that remember the name of the Berenstein Bears being spelled with an extra I, and apparently it never was. Oh. Um, there's also a movie that quite a few people remember being made. I believe it was, um, so back in the 80s, there's a lot of people that believes there was a movie that was made called Shazam and it starred um sounds familiar to me yeah so there's a bunch of people that think that there was a movie that happened in the 80s starring do you remember the comedian Sinbad he was in a lot of movies in the 90s there's a lot of people that think that he was in a movie where he played a genie and the movie was called Shazam and people will insist that they saw this movie when they were a kid the only problem is that movie never existed. And and it's not just one person. It's it's a whole bunch of Gen Xers. If you ask them if it's Berenstein or Berenstein Bears or if the movie Shazam existed, you can get people into arguments over whether it happened or not. 
because this this false memory is so pervasive um and and it's it's interesting there's a whole bunch of them if you look up mandela effect you can I'm find a whole a bunch of interesting things that people are pretty darn sure happened that never really did Wow. And it makes you think, you know, mine was a scary thing, but what about someone who, who's actually having PTSD from something that just wasn't explained to them or they weren't taught how to healthfully process the emotion. And so they've made it worse. And, 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 and gosh, if somebody would just come along with a video and say, no, no, it was just this, that they would have so much relief. Right. Can it- do that for you. I, I, the, you know, another another podcast. I'm so sorry, but you know, deep, deep, deep seated baggage that, that is awful. You can eliminate. And I've done it with cannabis. For me, one of the things I really love was when I was studying hypnosis, um, being able to meditate or, or go to a hypnotherapist and particularly with cannabis. I, I absolutely love cannabis and hypnotherapy as something to really help people get in touch with, you know, your inner child, you know, obviously not to replace counselors and therapy and doctors definitely have their place. But I would love if they would consider cannabis and alternative therapies as part of the arsenal to help people with with everything that's going on, you know, in their life. And just something legal like HHC, which, which I said, you know, my research shows gets you about a third as high, some says half as high. But imagine if you could have a couple puffs on an HHC before you before your therapist started in, because we know, you know, the first 15 minutes you're paying your good dollar for is just getting settled in and getting rid of your day. I mean, if you puff in the in the reception area, I mean, please. Yeah, break down those barriers before you even get in and start getting charged for your hour. Yeah, your growth in therapy would be exponential because you're that place they have to spend time getting you to you walk in the door ready to share. You and know? be right there, ready to say everything. All <laughs> right. So let's see here. I do want to get into I have a story today. I wanted to talk to you about a haunted brothel. Ooh, that sounds amazing. I'm going to switch my bowl out from wedding tree. I have a pre-packed bowl here of Durban poison. (laughs) Oh, yummy. That's another good one. I smoked that when I first moved out here to California. That was one of the first cultivars that I smoked here was Durban poison. Yummy stuff. I learned it from you. I said, I got to get that. And I tried it. Now it's one of our go-tos. So thank you for that. So it's so menthol-y and yummy. It is yummy. I, I, and I do like, I do like things that are yummy. I like them to have a great taste. Like I said, (laughs) Shell wants to go straight for that 32 plus THC. And, and I want a little more of a flavor. She's modifying now. You helped her out. Some of the lesser than when she hits the garlic cookies or whatever, you know, the 35, you know, crazy stuff that her and I like, uh, that everyone likes, um, she's going to feel it more. Right. And I, I think I heard her say that on air, you know, thank you. This is helping me. Yeah. She's getting she's save her she's, money. too. Oh, I think so too. She's definitely getting a little more sophisticated in, in picking different cultivars for different time times of day and different things that she would like to do rather than going straight for that heavy hitting, you know, make everything better really fast, yeah. you know, cultivar. So she's, she's doing really good. And I definitely think she's enjoying it. So we're going to, um, Swing over and to Butte, Montana, and we're going to talk about some ladies of the night over there, and we'll see if I can get you creeped out with a little story of, of 
Well, I guess it's a little sad too, maybe more than creepy, but you know. I definitely, I'm going to take this whole bowl of Durban poison and listen because I know I'm going to be sad and scared. <laughs> there you go. All right. So while you enjoy that, I want you to picture Butte, Montana in the 1870s, the height of the mining era during that time. In Colorado, and in Montana, copper was one of the big metals that they found up there. And in Butte, they had it in spades. There was so much. So they're mining copper and other lucrative metals around the clock. And these little towns would spring up everywhere that a mine would come. And they would start with tents and little shanties. And as the money started coming in from these mines, the towns would grow bigger and actual proper buildings would come in. And that's where a lot of these towns originated. Was a, They'd start out as mining towns, really rough places. And Butte had a reputation. They were notorious for the amount of gambling, drinking, prostitution, and fighting that happened there. And of course, for all the money that happened. So everybody came, miners came, people looking for a quick buck, people looking to make money off of the miners, everybody. And as you know, whenever a group of men, particularly back in the day in the West, gathered, <laughs> women would also come to ply their trade. And these women started out when it was just a tent city and they would go up and down the tents and became known as the ladies of the line as they would walk up and down the lines of tents offering their services to the miners. Now, in the beginning, they didn't really have a place to go, and the town was super rough and tumble. And as the money came in and more and more respectable people came in, now the speculators and the people looking to make money came and these two brothers uh french canadian brothers joseph and arthur nato i hope i'm saying their last name right nato um in 1888 they purchased a plot of land on like the main street in the what was at the time a red light district along what was called mercury street and they built the, the city's first two-story brick building and Interestingly enough, I've seen a lot of people refer to the style of this building as Victorian brothel or American bordello style. <laughs> and now I don't know architecture. In a but secret way, like if it has this kind of molding on the front, yes, go in there. <laughs> I guess so. And I'm pretty it sure it's faster. the way, right? I think it's the way the windows were. But <laughs> I looked up architectural styles and I couldn't really find any reference to American bordello or Victorian brothel. So I think those were made up by various websites. I don't know. But what they're referring to is um, when you think of Victorian, you think ornate. And this is not. It's a relatively flat brick front building and it's two stories. And on either side of the center door are these very long, tall floor to ceiling windows two and two on either side. And then again, up on the second floor, two and two windows. And they were big and tall like that so that the women could stand in them, all scantily clad in their little outfits and exactly advertise their wares and be there so that as people are walking down the street, they see these eight huge, well-lit windows with gorgeous women in each window. So basically advertising what's going on inside. So I guess Victorian, what? Window dressing. Exactly. So I guess Victorian brothel just means big windows so you can see the ladies. I don't know. But so they built it like this and they called it a hotel. And they put it in the name of Joseph's wife, Delia Dumas. So they called it the Dumas Hotel. It definitely was not a hotel. It was designed to attract miners to the very wealthy. And so they had different levels depending on what type of woman you could afford. 
When you went in the front door, if you went directly into the building, you went into a large parlor that had a lot of rooms off of it that could be either open to one great room or closed off into smaller rooms around the parlor. And that was where your average priced woman would be. And you'd go into the parlor and kind of pick out which woman you wanted and go off and close the doors. Or if you were one of the wealthier patrons, you might be frequenting the women who were upstairs. If you look upstairs from the parlor, it's all open to the second floor and it's like an open balcony. The rooms on the second floor go to a balcony that kind of look down to the first floor. And upstairs would be the woman, women hanging over the balcony, looking down into the parlor and they would be better dressed. They're more expensive. Spend a little more, spend a little more and come up here. Spend a little more, come up to the second floor. You know, you yeah. have, that's where you get a little bit more action. The strip club, they're like, come on for another 40 bucks, I can give you 10 more minutes. <laughs> Come back to the champagne room, little extra cash. And yeah. you could go to the second floor and they had rooms and suites up there. And that's also where the madam had. And the first madam was Joseph's wife, Delia, Madam Delia. And she had her quarters upstairs as well. Now, also, when you first look at the building, instead of going in the front door, there's a basement door. And you could go down to the basement where the very small, very inexpensive rooms work. You can see pictures of the, the hotel online. And these literally look like a dungeon. The stone walls or brick, very plain, only big enough for a small twin bed and maybe a stand with like a water basin next to it. But very, very small. And they were called cribs. And that's kind of where the, the term uh, crib for a place where you live comes from. Because they were really little, just a little place to sleep. Or, well, in this case, not sleep. <laughs> but that's where the a lot of the miners would go, was to these rooms down in the basement. The hotel had 42 or 43, depending on who you ask, rooms, and they were filled all the time. The mines were an around-the-clock business, 24 hours, three shifts. And so someone was always getting off work and wanting to go have a drink or have a girl and and have a good time and they made a ton of money this whole red light district was packed wall to wall with women and gambling and any vice you could ask for was there wow of course of course of course now behind the dumas they did so much work that they built an extra an annex with eight more rooms on it so that they oh could serve God. Even more customers. The keepers came to town. <laughs> That's right. And this whole alleyway was called Venus Alley because it had all the beautiful women. Kind of picture like Amsterdam, you know, that very closed in with all the, the, the windows with the women in it, like right next to you, just down this entire alley called Venus Alley. And the whole town is just full of alcohol, drugs, prostitution, people shooting each other. The place is just rife with riches and misery depending on who you were and the women that were here most of them didn't have a good life the the nato brothers grabbed various girls from different brothels they went to different dance halls and they kind of poached these girls from different places and most of them had either been prostitutes their entire life or were born into it or didn't just didn't have any other choice and in the beginning they would charge 50 cents to a dollar depending on what you wanted and which level of woman you were able to afford and the women themselves were only able to keep a small fraction of that money and very often had to pay to be there pay for their food and so there was no escape for these women 
prostitution today in some areas is legal and those women have a choice they're making good money they can do it they can leave they can do what they want to do these women didn't have that choice yeah and Most what you're what you're describing layla sounds so you know i know this was a long time ago but it sounds so similar to the way they portray it sometimes even now in in you know in media so it doesn't sound that much different. I thought, wow, this sounds like a modern setup I saw in a movie, <laughs> you know, so it's crazy that it's been around so long. Now, interesting that you say that, Lisa Ann, because this is the longest running brothel in the United States. It didn't close until 1985. Wow. <laughs> so it ran from 1890 until 1985. The, the NATO wow. brothers sold it. Uh, the early 50s, the brothers sold it to a woman named Eleanor Knott, and she became the next madam of, of the Dumas Hotel. This is the original tragedy because the, the working women back in the time, a lot of times they were young teenagers. They were just young girls. And the conditions were bad. They had drug use was rampant amongst them. If they got pregnant, it was practically a death sentence, whether they wanted to keep the child or whether they tried to have an abortion. The, the life for the child, if they did have it and they did survive the pregnancy, sometimes that child was sold into prostitution. And, and so the, the misery within those walls is, on the outside, it looked like a fun time, but you know, inside, inside the walls where these women were working, it, it was pretty much a horror story. And it got a little better, I think, uh, it sounds like at least um, when Eleanor Knott became the owner, she's said to have been a fair madam, if such a thing could have existed back in the early 50s. The, I guess in the 40s, prostitution kind of became illegal then. I didn't realize it had been at least tolerated until World War II. And they thought that, um, they thought that the servicemen were going to get too many diseases. And so they started cracking down on, on prostitution and whorehouses. And, and so the Dumas brothel kind of went underground, but it, it stayed a brothel. They just pretended they were a boarding house at that point. Why did they always try to take away our pleasurable things? <laughs> right? <protein>. <laughs> at that time in the forties, the price at that time was $2. <laughs> and if you paid $5, you could get one of the girls in the upper floors and have a really good time. <laughs> when Eleanor in the 50s took over, the price was $5. But Eleanor had tragedy of her own. Her husband died young and she fell in love with a married man. And supposedly he was going to come pick her up. And she had her bags packed and was ready to go. And when he didn't show up, she overdosed on pills and alcohol and committed suicide. There's a couple different versions to this story. Now, this hotel has been covered by several different paranormal investigators, and I've heard a few different things about what may have happened to Eleanor Not. One, I heard that her lover actually did come for her and died in a motorcycle crash on the way there. The other rumor that I've heard that I'm unable to corroborate is that her death wasn't suicide, but was a heart attack. So depending on what story, regardless, she died in the basement of the house, whether it was suicide over a broken heart or whether it was a heart attack, I, I wasn't able to find. But her ghost is said to roam the halls carrying her packed bags. And quite a few people, even in the 80s, the women that worked there would see her walking with her packed bags going down into the basement. Oh. So after she passed away, it changed hands several times and then 
the last madam of the house preferred to be called a landlady. And her name, I just know her as Landlady Ruby, ran the Dumas from 1971 to 1982. And she'd had a reputation as quite the hellion prior to becoming the madam of the Dumas. In 1959, she walked into a bar where her husband was gambling at a table calmly walked over to that motherfucker and shot him five times point blank killing him <laughs> despite the fact that a whole bar full of people saw her do this no one knew who it was she oh. had been beaten so badly by <gasps> by her common-law husband that she was unrecognizable her face was so bruised and so swollen not one person in that bar could identify who had shot him Wow. He had apparently been abusing her for years, and she finally had enough and decided to end it. The courts kind of had sympathy for her, too. She was convicted of manslaughter and was sentenced to four years in jail. She only served nine months. When was this? was in 1959. Okay. She did that in 1959. And then in 1971, she took over the Dumas. And she was apparently a very fair madam and took very good care of all the women that worked there and made sure that they were treated fairly, wanted everyone to be taken care of, and would not tolerate anyone to abuse any of the women in her care. And at that time, in the 80s, when it closed, do you want to guess how much you could get laid for at the Dumas? In the 80s? Mm -hmm. uh, $35. Oh, very close. Lisa Ann, what don't we know about you? How do <laughs> <laughs> it was $20, $20. So you would have been going to the upper floors, Lisa Ann. No, no cheap girls for you. You're <laughs> Give you the top shelf. Of money, that's all that shows. <laughs> <laughs> you just want the top shelf. That's all. Don't blame you. Don't blame you. But um, so, yeah, it was $20 when they closed in 1982. And it closed mostly because of uh, tax evasion. Apparently no taxes had been paid in years. And so it, <laughs> that was the end of the longest running brothel. But since then, people have tried to restore it. It was sold, um, Madam Ruby or Landlady Ruby sold it to a gentleman on condition that it be uh, repaired and restored to its original state. Because these rooms, a lot of them are still in the exact original state that they were in when it stopped working. And also Ruby and the the first owner after it was a brothel, opened up some boarded rooms in the basement and found all those cribs that had been boarded for a few decades oh. since the early 40s and 50s. And they hadn't been touched. You can still see the wear marks in the floor. There's still cigarettes with lipstick on them sitting by the window that looks out into the alleyway. And you can, the hotel, they've tried to turn it into a museum and they have old sex aids they have old dildos they have antique things that people would use to kind of get their groove on back in the day maybe some whips and some corsets and <laughs> i didn't see any whips i did see corsets and all sorts of different types of lingerie and that type of thing but in the basement um where the one madam had committed suicide there's a lot of activity there and there have been so many paranormal investigations. There have been a few shows because the activity is from top to bottom. And you can imagine just with the tragedy and the sorrow that this building has seen, people go in there and immediately in some of the rooms feel a sense of dread. They, there's pictures of orbs. There's a dark shadow in the basement that makes people sick if you see it. And there's a 
one investigation I saw a video of where two of the people actually got physically ill after being in the basement and encountering, you know, they'll walk through and there'll be a substance on the floor that hadn't been there before. There's a a few different ghosts of particular people. Like I said, they see Eleanor who walks through with her bags and she's easily recognized. There's a few other entities. One of them is called Sarah and she is a woman who was probably a prostitute in the basement in those smaller cribs in the on the basement floor back she was murdered she might have been one of the cribs apparently when they opened up that sealed off section were able to open these rooms that hadn't been opened in decades one of them the door itself you could tell had been broken in and the door jam was broken and and it was all someone had repaired enough so you could shut the door but you could see the door had been forced in and you could see the kick marks on the door and inside the room was a bloody handprint on the wall oh my gosh there's things happening there's been some people taken too soon or abruptly or violently down there. Exactly. And it's said that there was a a makeshift hospital down there to treat all the different diseases and things that happened to the women. And usually by someone who didn't know what they were doing, there have been a lot of EVP recordings here um, with people saying, what are you doing here? What do you want? Different women's voices in the air. There's quite a few entities that have been caught. One, a male who's very malevolent and people aren't sure if he was an owner or if he was possibly one of the men who would come in. Um, but he touches people and, and leaves marks. A few of the owners have done paranormal tours with people and they'll come out with scratches, unexplained scratches on their back. Oh my God. The entities here are not happy. They have it open. You can do tours as a museum. And I believe you can also go there and do paranormal investigations. And it's just interesting to me that how many people see the shadows of the women walking from room to room, or they'll see the the dark man in the basement and different psychics have gone there and have had a lot of the same experiences where they'll see the one madam Eleanor going through and have been able to name her even without knowing the history or the story. Oh, wow. So it's kind of interesting just being able to look through the pictures. Honestly, when you look at the pictures, it looks like someone's really cheesy 80s version of what a prostitute's bedroom might look like. You know, (laughs) (laughs) throw some cheap paneling, a lot of of red, cheap red silk. (laughs) Oh, no, Madonna wouldn't even be this tacky. But... You know, and of course, it's got the sink in the corner so you can wash up afterwards. So there's no doubt what these rooms are. So all these rooms have windows next to the door. So the girls in the room would stand in the window. Like you're in a little Barbie box. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They put these women in these little in these little windows to, you know, try and entice customers in. There's no doubt what these rooms were used for. It's a bed, a sink and a window so you can look in. It's pretty obvious. But they... The manifestations that go through there, again, one of them, I guess one of the nicer ones is either Sarah or Sandra, and people will hear her talk, and sometimes they'll feel caresses on their face or on their shoulder from her. If you go on the tour, there's you'll see a refrigerator. It's just a small, old-time refrigerator, but it was built with a false back. And one of the prostitutes that was there um, was very famous and very popular. They, I guess they had stolen her from some other house of ill repute and when the 
the brothel would get raided, she was little enough that she would fit into the special secret compartment in the back of this refrigerator. And that's where she would hide so that they couldn't find her when the raids would happen. And they'll show you the secret compartment in the refrigerator where she kind I of like hid. That. That's kind of groovy, actually. I like that. <laughs> and the, there's other secrets to this building as well. Down in the basement where the smaller cribs were, there's also holes that are remnant from the tunnels. Again, if there was a raid going to happen, the girls could jump down these little holes and go through the tunnels that were underneath Venus Avenue that went to various other buildings and bars in the city. One of them was rumored to even go to City Hall. Oh, well, that would surprise us at all, would it? <laughs> Not at all. So people, prominent people. Middle of the ball. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, all the, the upper crust people who would never do any of these things could walk <laughs> the secret tunnel over to their favorite brothel in the red light district. But the ghosts <laughs> of those women and some of the men are still there. And, you know, I've seen a bunch of videos on YouTube. I've, I've read some people's firsthand accounts of going there and everyone sees the orbs and the figures and hears voices it just seems a place that has ghosts from top to bottom wow what what, what was the city again it's in butte montana oh, butte montana oh yeah, wow. i believe it's on mercury avenue and it's it's called the dumas hotel or the dumas brothel it's open on and off it is in a state of disrepair it, it looks terrible I'm a little sad about the whole thing because it, it's changed hands a few times since the 80s. And I believe the current owners, just like the owners before them, are trying to restore it and turn it into a museum, B&B, paranormal investigation kind of place. And I wish them the best, but the, the building is crumbling. It needs owner. They need, they need someone who hears you today to be a donor. That's <laughs> and, right. Because, you know... I mean, there's possibilities that some of these spirits can find their peace, you know, somehow if we get some attention on them too. So, but that would be great to have it restored back to how it used to be. And yeah, just the history of the building, the fact that it's the longest running brothel in the U.S., that it it has all these things that have been there, the, the rooms and the beds and the dildos that have been there since day one. And it all started from miners needing to get off. Yeah, everybody... Everybody needs a little, you know, if you're working a job like that, you need a little downtime, man. Who doesn't need you're to relax? Around all day, you, you know, you gotta. <laughs> and I don't know, they were saving all the hemp to write the constitution or something back then, but I don't know if they had access to cannabis. I have, I would be very curious to see what, if cannabis was in the wild west or in back when people were doing these, in these mining towns, you know, like the gold rush here or in Colorado and Montana, you hear about alcohol. Was anybody smoking pot? I don't know. I'm curious. That's a really good question. And it's also a beautiful transition into my story, if you want to go there. I do want to go there. Yes. <laughs> Yours, your story was about miners in, in Montana and mm -hmm. beautiful transition. And you said, well, you know, did they have weed back in the, in the mining camps or the logging camps, you know? Yeah. Well, my story just comes down and west a little bit to, to Northern California. And uh, my story, I'm going to call it uh, Stoned Sasquatch Murder. Whoa, I am really intrigued now. I'm high. I'm high. I just made that up. And it's just, <gasps> I want to say that it's just a tiny Sasquatch slice because I'm leaving that whole territory to you to do justice, <laughs> but this is just one story where stone stone being a stoner and a Sasquatch happened at the same time. 
I love this. I am so intrigued. And we do, since we're the West Coast, since we're the West Coast witches, we can talk about Sasquatches. So you go right yes. ahead. I love that. We and have that Sasquatch, Sasquatch territory. The one here. So don't tell me about a Sasquatch in, on the East Coast. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> All right. So, so own Sasquatch murders. I am super intrigued. I, I got my blue dream packed. Okay. I'm sitting down. <laughs> I am comfortable and ready to go. Hit me. What do we got? If I scare myself, I might need some more Durban poison. So I have always had a thing for Bigfoot. Um, you know, I was a young girl in the 70s. And I remember going to the library and getting all the Sasquatch books that I was able to understand at age like 9, 10, 11. And the pictures and the things that I did see reminded me of the place I went every summer for camp. So I would go for like a week. Some, when I got older, I'd go two weeks, three weeks, San Bernardino mountains. And it just, oh gosh, um, how nice was that? It was really nice. Yeah. I, I kind of grew up there and, and, uh, in the summers. And, um, and so I would read the Sasquatch books and I felt like he, he was my friend. And when I was at camp, Sometimes I would, you know, see him, little girl, right? And you I was such a witch. You are such a witch. <laughs> I, would, I would just smile and go, well, he would be friendly to me, but I can't go play with him right now because, you know, everyone would, you know, think that was weird. But I had a, I had kind of a crush on Sasquatch. I knew that he would be protective of me and fun and, and would be nice. And if he's ever been mean to anyone, well, it was their fault. They provoked him or whatever. So I had this kind of young girl, the Sasquatch. Lisa Ann, you witchy <laughs> thing, you. Is that, you a, is that a witchy sign? Whether Sasquatch or the spirit of the wood, you connected with that male forest energy. You were feeling that god of the wood, the green man, Kernunos, the the lord of the horned god of the wood running through the forest. And however that presented to you, whether through Sasquatch, it was that it was that wild energy, that wild man forest god energy that you kind of connected with there and had had a special feeling with. And I think that's kind of that energy was calling to you as a child. And, and I love that you witchy thing. <laughs> well, and what you just said makes, makes, um, <clears throat> gosh, I'm such a, I'm such an emotional girl. It, it makes really, it hits really home and it makes sense to me because at that time in my life, I would have been looking for this friendly male who was protective. Right. You, right. That's real. I'll think about that later. I'm going to, I'm going to file that back. I, I have chills. I love that. He was there for you. He knew that that's the side of him that you needed. And, and that, that God of the wood came to you and that protector forest guys. I love that. Right. And, and at that time it wasn't Sasquatch wasn't, you know, I think there's popular cartoons, um, um, Harry and the Hendersons or something, you know, it wasn't that this was back in the seventies where there was sightings and, and up in the redwoods up here in Northern California. And, and, and um, so my story goes to weed because so up in those forests up there um, is the Emerald triangle, uh, which is where my weed is grown. The, the, the cannabis I get from flower company, that's where it's grown. So Preach I said, best weed in the world. Yep. So Sasquatch is a childhood thing. And now cannabis is my kind of grown up childhood thing. And they're coming together in this story. There was um, a young kid in 1993 who was working for 
a grower, just, you know, people would come and just go, Hey, you know, they probably weren't making much money, but they just wanted to get away. Young kids, you know, story as old as time, go to the nearest hippie town, go to the place that Fred said about where he made some money and he didn't have to work for the man or whatever. Right. So they gravitate up there and he's there. And this, this story is kind of on the internet, this part of it. So people will know about it, but he's there. And as he's there as a worker, somebody runs in and says, really frantically and says, oh my gosh, that three of the men that, that were guarding the, the plants, you know, it's a cannabis farm, you know, they've been murdered by Bigfoot. What? Been, I saw it big. I saw the stream <gasps> murdered by Bigfoot and, and the journal, this man who's telling the story later, who's the journalist, <laughs> David Holthouse. Um, he says at that age at 23, it scared the shit out of him because he knew about Bigfoot in this area and Sasquatch. And, and he had been there just a short while, but had already been warned, you know, don't go out on your own. Be careful. There's been sightings. There was all these, these cement casts that people had made of these giant 17 inch by seven inch flat footed prints that they would find. I thought big, I was going to find Bigfoot kind of like quicksand around any corner in yes, the woods. And why were we why were we into quicksand and so afraid of quicksand back and then? And Bigfoot too. I remember there was constantly plaster casts of feet and yes. sightings and people. I was absolutely sure Bigfoot Sasquatch was going to be around the next tree at any second. So sorry to interrupt, but it was it was everywhere no, then. But that just means it was in the I mean, I was in LA County at that time. So where what county were I was you? in New York. I was in Ontario oh. County, New York. New York okay. State. So this was in the ethos. It was out there yeah. in the collective consciousness. This, this oh, I knew that the Redwoods were a hotbed of Sasquatch activity when I was a kid. <laughs> it was common knowledge. Everybody knew Sasquatch, Redwoods, they're all up there. Well, I remember my parents doing the, you know, station wagon, California, Brady Bunch road trip. And we, we drove through that tree. There's a redwood you can, and I was looking for Bigfoot everywhere. I knew I would see my friend, you know, and, yep. and, and I probably, you know, I don't remember, but I probably saw him a couple of times, you know, and kind of winked at him. I don't know. I was very whimsical, but, but anyway, so, so this, this David kid, he's 23 years old, 1993 is there just relaxing, sh surely smoking pot, but actually sees the encounter where the other worker comes in and says, these three men, their bodies have been torn apart. They've been murdered. The The crop is ruined. There's blood everywhere. Um, oh, wow. And, and just a freak, totally terrified. Like, yeah, the man was terrified. You know, he was a young kid. So the grower and the terrified worker, you know, and they go out and they talk and he's just sitting there trying. He's a young kid. He's just trying to take in what he saw. He's probably high. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Bigfoot definitely killed these three men. This was the report at the time. No plants taken, just destroyed. And that's why they knew it wasn't um, a because there was a lot of crime up there as far as other black market growers, which is what these people were, yeah. um, you know, competition. And so right, right. If it was competition, they would have taken it. Yeah. And, no, and, and if it was a theft. Yeah, it, it, it would be $150,000, I think they said, if somebody had taken this. That was Back the in the 70s, that's that. a lot. Yeah, and, and so, so the, they knew it, it wasn't that. So this is his, his memory, um, and this is a, a journalist, his, his name's David Holhouse again, that, that has been reporting on 
monsters. And, and that came from his childhood abuse. That's his story. It's very poignant. You have to listen to it. So he, he gets drawn in his journalism to monsters. Well, he remembered, he actually experienced hearing that Bigfoot killed these three men and it was announced right in front of him. And it always freaked him out, really scared him, stayed with him his whole life. And now it's 2021 and he's done uh, come back to, to say, hey, I'm going to go investigate what I heard when I was 23 years old. Very so cool. It's a long time later. So here, here's the story. Um, and firstly, I want to say, if you haven't been to that area, if you and they he, he's the one I learned this from and I've seen this, too. If you get in an airplane or a helicopter and you take off from like, you know, Sacramento and you fly to Alaska, you're going to see for hours and hours, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of forest. So oh, yeah. this is stuff that is so dense and so old. It's, it's got the oldest trees on the planet. You know, these trees can be up to 2000 years old. This is dense, old, archaic land where you could easily disappear and no one would ever find you. Um, it's just so people don't understand. Well, if, if there's a bunch of Sasquatch there, how come it, you don't understand? Go fly over it, go on Google Earth, whatever. It's just vast. You can't even conceive of how vast and, and dense and tall. Um, the trees are so tall that if you're, you were in there, you'd have no sunlight in the middle of the day. So this is dense, dense, dense. It's foggy. It's rainy. Um, it's, um, you know, that's where the Emerald Triangle is. And what happens there? Well, plants grow really nicely. Um, there's a lot of things that they don't have to, to deal with there. And you would know more about that being a cultivar. Growing <laughs> with that. But a bunch of Sasquatch could easily hide. And I think they're there. But in the 1800s, the gold rush came and this goes into to kind of the era that you were talking about. And they came in and, and we know it's horrible. Um, that's another podcast, you know, but the indigenous people were plundered. The, these gold rush people, um, he, he actually says this in his thing. He goes, they weren't the brightest bunch. They were the kind of people that would come for quick, get rich, quick things, right? These, right. these weren't people with an established education and career. They weren't and sending their best. <laughs> they were able to just leave wherever they were and go disappear and search for gold. And, and so he said they, they, it's, it's very obvious and documented. They butchered, they butchered women, children, oh, old wow. people. Oh, that's this terrible. Land, and I'm just setting the foundation for like, this land is, is, is a war zone. You know, already it was because of uh, the founding of America, but then this is now a gold rush. You know, there's something on this land we want. We're going to kill everything that was there before. And people are more than willing to commit atrocities in the name of the almighty dollar. It's happening as we speak. And so, this land's already blood soaked several, several times. And then in 1849, the mining camps came. So the gold rush was, was there. And then these mining camps came and people came with dreams to like make a lot of money, but they found this harsh reality, loneliness, homesickness, isolation, danger <laughs> from wildlife. And, and, you know, you can kill somebody out in these woods and leave their body. Don't even bury it. No one's ever going to find it. It's right around the same time that, that Butte was being founded for the same reasons, the mining and, and, yes. and because they come up so quickly, there's no law there. There's no government. No law. In your yeah. case, it's so remote that everyone rushes there before civilization catches up to them. 
And so a lot right. happens until civilization gets there. Right. And, and, and we're still not there, but yeah. there's, 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 you know, and so they, they had bad food. There was illness. Of course, people were, were um, dying from disease everywhere from, from um, bad cuts, from falling off ladders, slipping off of rocks. Um, there was a silica dust involved in the process that they would inhale. They didn't oh, that's know. Awful um, for people. Oh. Mercury poisoning, lead poisoning, arsenic poisoning. They didn't know what they were doing. There was no regulations or someone testing the water, or the soil. Right. They so, were just trying to make as much money as they could and they didn't really care how. Exactly. And that just added another layer of blood to this area, mm -hmm. you know, up there. And then 1945 to Speedway Forward, 1955 logging camps came. These trees, and this is, you know, 30 feet diameter trees, 400 feet high, trees over a thousand years old. And they're just, oh my goodness. They're just <laughs> raising Plundering them. Oh my goodness. The hardest thing on this planet is humans, right? The, the most harsh thing on mother is nature is humans, but they're making railroads. They're making, um, you know, houses They're you know, there's all these reasons why they, they need this, this lumber. And they had, uh, you know, there's failing these trees and there's pictures online that just, you know, break your heart. And I, I really want to go up there and do that again now as an uh, adult. Um, mm -hmm. So, and then railroads came in the, in, in and everything, but then again, these, the same thing, you know, we had the, the miners, we had the, uh, um, the, uh, I'm a little bit high. Sorry. No worries. No worries. But anyway, we, we came and we have these logging camps now and they had lumberjacks and they had lumber jills. So there was male and female and they worked six days a week and they lived in these tightly packed shacks and they were fed and paid uh, well, but it was, uh, it was, and is still one of the most deadliest uh, occupations. So it's just, you know, the natives were wiped out, the the gold rush people, the miners, the it's just, it's just, so what's the next layer of blood going to be? Well, the next right. layer is hippies. So <laughs> wait, 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 hippies, they're not a tragedy. Hold on. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Hippies? Wait a minute. <laughs> but we're getting the Sasquatch and weeds. So we're getting closer. So, so hippies came, they were back to the landers. It's the seventies. They want to get away from the man. A lot of them are, are, you know, it's after the Vietnam war, they're really just anti everything. And they go out there and they had a certain dream and, you know, you can read many books on this, but a lot of them did well for quite a while. And then the things that happen within relationships and, and, having groups of people together and, oh, by the way, we have children now, we need to go back to the city because of this or too many love triangles or just somebody not being able to live that rough lifestyle or, or contribute. Yeah, it's the end stage of every coven and, and self-planned <laughs> yeah. community ever, basically. <laughs> exactly. And this is what happened. And so there was a lot of um, hippie blood in a way, uh, you know, I, I definitely you know, I've read some stories of murder over, you know, cannabis things and things like that. But basically what happened, I, I heard is that kind of a hell's angel group came in and black market growers, and they would make it very scary for a lot of these people to be able to afford to keep growing. Because if your crop gets burned down right before harvest, and you lose your income 300,000 for the whole year, to share with all these people and pay all your bills, you know, and pretty soon they just 
even though that very well in, intentioned and everything, it just um, got taken over a lot by these more criminal hell's angel. And that's kind of where our, our Sasquatch murder comes in. So um, hmm. in 1993, like I said, David Holthouse overheard this and the town presented it because it's a uh, the kind of town it is with crime at that time in 1993. There's a more criminal black market growth going on that's very that has the finances to keep themselves safe and with with dogs and technology and drones and you know just all kinds of things. Um, that uh, only the mom and pops were as well funded as as the illegal enterprises. <laughs> right? I know it, it's isn't that such a quandary we have to do even every day, like I would love to go get this jam at a mom and pop, but, you know, well, today, the part of the Hells Angels is played by the United States government with all their pay us money or we'll punish you schemes and, you know, give us all their rules and regulations that you have to follow. Not a lot of it's necessary. So the thugs today is the government. But anyway, back to your story. <laughs> oh, no, and something that something else I just wanted to, to touch on that I learned about from him was a, a, a government agency I didn't know existed. It's called CAMP, Campaign Against Marijuana Planting, founded in 1983. (gasps) Nobody knows about this. Multi-agency law enforcement to eradicate illegal cannabis. I already hate them. Layla, this is, I I was so shook up when you talked about spilling your shake or your teeth out of the, okay. It was a sad moment. This is worse than that. I've come and cut down acres <gasps> of our lovely female oh. and throw her in a ditch and burn her. I mean, oh, this is no. burning woman stuff. No, I, a lot of times it's the smaller farms. You know, it's the it's the mom and pop family that have been growing. It's the hippie family that have been growing since the 70s. And somebody like Camp comes in and cuts down all their stuff. And oh, it just makes me so angry. This is what happened is, and, and Camp, it was founded in 1983, but I Googled them this morning. They're still there. <gasps> and, and so they came in kind of with the war on drugs. Right. Oh, yeah. and, and we all know now, you know, that the war on drugs caused uh, the war it on cost drugs. so much money and did nothing. It, it did nothing. It, it brought opiates. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, now we have thanks. Opiate. Now we have the epidemic. Thank you. Anyway, back to Bigfoot. And, and oh, his- right, right. Off track. <laughs> so a lot of people were saying at the time, hey, you guys are getting too close into hit into the Sasquatch area. Sas- Bigfoot is coming out to warn you, stay away from our territory. And so these men were dismembered. And the, the- hold on, wait, I'm sorry. So they told Hell's Angels that they can't go further because Sasquatch is in there. I I can just imagine a hippie. Hey, dude, dude in leather jacket and chains. Come here, man. Come here. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Don't go too far in the woods. (laughs) Bigfoot's going to get you. I think the Hills Kitchen. Well, anyway, I don't want to go to the end of the story. But this grower that this happened to, the journalist found out later that he was uh, like a tweaker. And the guy who came and announced the big, oh, I saw the murder. He was also a a tweaker. So at the time, Mm. he didn't know that. He didn't know how to recognize that. Right. 
as an adult, he was 26 when he heard about this murder as an adult. He goes back to the Emerald Triangle in his documentary, um, which is called Sasquatch on Hulu. This is how I kind of found tidbits from him. So he goes back and finds out he wants to know, do, do I know about a murder that's unsolved? And so he goes to the sheriff there in that Emerald Triangle, which is like Mendocino, uh, Humboldt, and Trinity counties, I think are the three. The sheriff there says, you don't understand, in the United States, we have the most missing person accounts. We have the most unsolved murders. Wow. Emerald. Really? Yes, because- wow. Yes, because illegal cannabis and because if you dumped a body there or, or you wanted somebody to disappear, they're, they're never going to find them. They're never going to. I gonna see. Find them. Okay. The dark side of cannabis. And, and you can watch the documentary, but what happens to this journalist is that he starts hitting walls of people who go, oh, that's what you want to talk about? Click. <laughs> you know, Really? Or, no one will talk to him about it. Did you mention? Click. Or some people who would talk to him had to be blurred out and their voices changed. But they were also telling him, if I tell you this, you are now on the list of people who are in danger. Wow. You know, and, and also at the same time, there's people trying to prove to him that it was Sasquatch. So I think one of the reasons you and I were so into Bigfoot was because in 1967, there was these brothers, I think it's called Gimlin Patterson, the Gimlin Patterson film. And it's the only film of Sasquatch walking through the forest. And if you saw it, you'll go, oh, I remember that from my childhood because I remember it. And, and there he is. Okay. So there, there, what happened was they knew they had seen Sasquatch and there was Sas Sasquatch around there. So for 20 days, they drove all day long looking for him and they had a video camera. So back then, and it's pretty good video. So it was like a news camera. I mean, think about back then how big and heavy that would have been. Yeah. They went and looked and looked. And on the 20th day, they spotted him and were able to set up their cameras and you can watch the video of him walking very human-like, uh, but very Bigfoot and Sasquatchy, you know, um, these, these uh, Sasquatch are um, nine feet tall up to a thousand pounds with wow. these eight, 17 by seven inch feet. And you have a video of it. And that's when everybody said, well, this is, there it is. And then there, there was, was proof. There was proof. And then there's a, a anthrop anthropology professor from the university of Idaho who collects the casts. And he has, he has child Sasquatch flat-footed giant casts. He has, he has the female, he has the giant, you know, male Sasquatch, and he goes to the Emerald Triangle all the time to, to study this. That's so, so we have, cool. We have film proof that Sasquatch was there and you can go online and find out about that Gimlin Patterson film and you can decide what you believe. I believe it. I'll put a link to it. I'll see if I can find it and put a link to it. One of the things that that everyone talks about in the Emerald Triangle is, is you'll know it's a Sasquatch because he'll throw huge logs or rocks that a human couldn't pick up and they'll land 10 feet away from you, really hit with a heavy thud. You'll hear growling. You'll be bluff charged. So it feels like something's running at you and then it's not. And all the people are saying, yes, he's very stinky. You'll, it's this horrific smell that will make you nauseous. He's very- there's a banshee scream. Um, it's the only time I've ever been that scared in my whole life. Up there, you hear this all the time. So, you know, we kind of know that that it's... That that's the territory. 
So what does he find out about our murderous Sasquatch? I gotta know. (laughs) So was it Bigfoot or was it greedy black market hell's angel growers? What was it? Well, the, if not Sasquatch, they have a name of an alleged killer. Oh. Who no one will talk about or go on camera and talk about. And they won't go on camera and talk about the guy who hired him supposedly. And so as the journalist moved closer to wanting to prove that it was Sasquatch, he he wanted to, you know, that would be, he'd be okay with that too. Right. Just Mm -hmm. telling the truth started getting these less Sasquatch information and more people going 1993, three Mexican men murdered in, and the, and no robbery. Oh, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Oh, so he was getting too close to a conspiracy of some kind. In his search for stoned Sasquatch, he uncovered and actually ended up speaking to people who clarified it for him, which kind of goes back to my memory, right? He had a, he had a memory and thought he had, you know, been almost witness to a murder, but I believe Sasquatch was framed. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it. Maybe to cover up a a gang-related murder or a rival murder. The tweakers spread the story. I think greed and prohibition killed them, of course. And, you know, leave Sasquatch alone. I'm going to play Shell's part here. And I'm going to say it was definitely Sasquatch. They were mad because they were destroying the land. Sometimes these illegal grows have, they use terrible pesticides and fertilizers and they're horrible for the land. And the mining land, and the lum- lumber, lumberjacking, all of this. Yeah, was all of it together. And the Sasquatch just couldn't take it anymore and took out their anger on those gardeners and that garden. So okay, I know yeah, if well, Shell was here, she would definitely say Sasquatch did it. I'm on Sasquatch did it. Thank you for bringing some shell perspective (laughs) to this because I, you know, I'm going to be cynical, right? But this, this, I'm totally there. Leave them alone. We've destroyed enough. They'll, you know, they'll be here long after we're gone. I hope they're immune Mm -hmm. to whatever we do to ourselves and just leave them alone. Yep. That's right. The, the environment, like you said, it had been plundered and ripped up from the miners and the loggers. And now you know, even the hippies are guilty of not being good stewards of the land sometimes when it comes to cannabis gardens. So yeah, that's, well, I, I'm saying it. Indigenous people, the land didn't get her love anymore. Right. Ne- you know, never. And I think the Sasquatch is the defender of the land. And in this case, yes. I'm, I'm Sasquatch side. <laughs> Maybe as West Coast people, we got it. We got to stay on the Sasquatch <laughs> side. I think he's our, he's our territory. So. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That is a great story. A stone Sasquatch killed a couple of illegal gardeners. I would love some more Sasquatch from you, Layla, because there's so, you know, there's scarier Sasquatch stories. Uh, there are. There's so much. I'm definitely going to have to do like a three-part series on Sasquatch because there's, there's so many different stories from and super you scary. West Coast versus East Coast Sasquatch because I read about one in North Carolina or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, oh, that's yeah. not the real one. So you could say viewers, which is the real Sasquatch. That's right. Or maybe, you know, they migrate possibly from, I I hear they migrate on the East Coast down South. So maybe they migrate all over the whole country. We'll have to, I'm not, I'm not a Bigfoot expert, but we'll have to, we'll have to see if any of our Sasquatch experts want to weigh in on whether they're different species or if it's like one big tribe that moves around or something. 
And buy le- legal cannabis from the Emerald Triangle, guys. Buy, it's there. It's legal. Buy it from Flower Company. Yes, get legal <laughs> cannabis. Oh, my gosh. Or buy it from your local, you know, middle-aged chick down the street who grows fire <laughs> in her garage. That's the mom and pop way. Thank you. That's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> we need to patronize good companies, companies that treat us well, that treat their growers well. Flower Company. Sasquatch Weed. I mean, and Sasquatch Weed. Sasquatch could have peed on my weed. That's amazing. I would have smoked Sasquatch <laughs> Weed. You know, at Bigfoot, really, honestly, if they want to take care of the garden, they could have an organic line of their own i would pay money for sasquatch weed and smoke it i would buy a label called sasquatch weed if it was from the emerald triangle it would be a great hit that i think it would be a huge hit and i would absolutely do it my motto sasquatch peed on your weed i i would i would buy it just for the for that slogan (laughs) (laughs) yeah there you go credit to lisa ann for that idea if you decide to take it but thank you lisa ann so much for joining us today and for one trying to fill Shell's uh, witchy pointy shoes. <laughs> well, we she's definitely missed, but we very much appreciate your perspective and your stories. I I would definitely smoke Sasquatch weed. I can't stop thinking about it. I need to look for some now. There's got to be a Bigfoot somewhere who's growing pot, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Stoned Witches Hour with Layla and. Lisa Ann today filling in for Shell. We appreciate you taking the time to spend a little spooky high moment with us. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and maybe leave a review. It really helps the show out, gets us out there for more listeners, and plus it makes us feel really good and gives us a smile for the entire day. Who doesn't need a little bit more of that in their life? So we really appreciate it. Happy 420 and tune in next week for another episode with Layla and Shell on the Stoned Witches Hour. Stay high and stay spooky. See you next time.